Hello, this is Dr. Dan Guerra. I come to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful United States of America. Today is the 13th of December, 2020, and it is snowing out here and it's very pretty. It's beginning to look a lot like Christmas. All right, so let's get into our topic for today, which is the PDH LDH. PDHK axis for lymphocyte activation. Now, PDH is pyruvate LDH, of course, lactate dehydrogenase, and the PDHK is the pyruvate kinase. So we're right in the depths of one of the fine-tuning mechanisms of aerobic and anaerobic glycolysis. But we're in the T-lymphocyte we're not in the liver, the lung, or the muscle, okay? So let me give you a, a kind of a um, general overview here where, why we're going into this with this whole process of discussing immune system and aging. Now, I developed a theory about 10 years ago um, that had its first um, instantiations relative to neuroscience research I was doing in epigenetics. And what I said back then was that the immune response could function to generate what becomes a networked synaptic connection in the brain that occurs, of course, during development and also during learning and throughout life, all the way to senescence and aging and death. Now, as, a, as an understanding of that, what we know about the immune system relative to the CNS has a lot to do with ischemic stroke and to outright frank brain damage. That's one side of it. And the other side of it is what occurs during neurodegeneration. So soon after an ischemic insult, like a stroke, you get increased levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines, and they can enhance ultimately the expression of adhesion molecules uh, within cerebral endothelial cells. That causes the adhesion and transendothelial migration of otherwise circulating neutrophils and monocytes. Okay, this is all happening now in the CNS. Now these immune cells then may accumulate in the capillary. They're going to decrease cerebral blood flow. They can further cause damage by extravasating into brain parenchyma. And besides that, the infiltrating leukocytes as well as the resident brain cells, including neurons and microglia, will themselves release pro-inflammatory cytokines, chemokines, and in fact also reactive oxygen and reactive nitrogen radicals that can result in massive tissue damage, okay? So recent studies have highlighted over these last 10 years the involvement of matrix metalloproteinases, which we've discussed in authentic biochemistry at great length, uh, and the propagation and regulation of neuroinflammatory responses relative to the aging brain as well as to ischemic brain injury, okay? Now, the enzymes that cleave protein components of the extracellular matrix, like collagen and proteoglycan and laminin, also process a number of cell surface and soluble proteins, and those include receptors and cytokines and, of course, one in particular is IL-1-beta, which we've covered. That's all being covered by the induction of matrix metalloproteinases, which are carrying out those 
proteolytic processing mechanisms, all again occurring in the uh, CNS. <clears throat> now, a paper published way back in Feb's journals, volume 276 in 2009, showed me that a CNS insult will convert to pro-interleukin-1 beta to the mature form of that very um, toxic pro-inflammatory cytokine. So interleukin-1 beta goes up and it will bind to the IL-1R, that's the receptor. And then what happens in the endothelium is you get increased permeability and upregulation of these adhesion molecules, particularly ICAM-1. In the microglia, you get astrogliosis, which is inflammation. You get proliferation of the microglia themselves and you get, get a release of a, of a cache A of neurotoxins. In the neurons and in other associated cells, you get COX-2 induction, that's a cyclooxygenase. It's going to make um, eicosanoids that are going to induce an inflammatory response at the innate level. You're also going to get the production of nitric oxide, and you're going to, because of that, get the first synthesis and recruitment of tumor necrosis factor alpha. All of those things I just mentioned to you are going to be involved in then brain damage, particularly CNS damage. Okay. In fact, hours after ischemia, astrocytes can become hypertrophic. Microglia cells evolved into the amoeboid shape. They get an enlarged cell body and they have a shortened cellular process. Within a day, within 24 hours after focal ischemia, you get an intense microglial reaction and that develops in the ischemic tissue itself, particularly in the penumbra. And within days, Within just a few days, most of the microglial cells that are in that region transform into um, card-carrying phagocytic cells. You also get the activation of microglial cells enhancing inflammation outright, which contributes to further tissue injury. Indeed, when you take immunosuppressive drugs like, like the minocycline that were that have been used, they reduced the they will reduce stroke-associated infarct damage by preventing microglial activation, which of course is induced by the initial events of stroke. Now, however, macrophages and microglial cells contribute to tissue recovery at the same time. They do so, of course, because they become phagocytic. So they scavenge what? Necrotic digested cells in the CNS. That induces a plasticity for potentially neurogenesis and for microglial reproduction, both of which can act as tissue repair mechanisms. So if you get an ablation of proliferating microglial cells, you actually may get an increase in brain injury. So you want to let micro microglia proliferate, right? Go through cell divisions. Now, depending on the cellular context, Inflammatory cells like microglia can induce cellular death, as we've been saying now, or they can enhance cellular repair. Therefore, maintenance is a way to afford what I call plasticity. Right? So the removal of damaged neurons and associated synaptic connections with a simultaneous repair of other neuronal circuits is actually a molecular mechanism for sculpting the central nervous system network. And that could be a means by which highly innervated and connected prefrontal cortex 
can induce after reception and then respond subsequently to neurotransmission from other regions of the brain, such as the limbic system, okay? For example, associated with stress. So the question considered is how do immune cells and immunoregulatory proteins, which, are, which include cytokines and chemokines, and of course, immunoglobulins themselves, coming from B cells and plasma cells, how can they recognize specific neuronal nuclei? So you have to have a mechanism for maintaining and increasing synaptic strength versus an obsolescence NPCD or programmed cell death. And that could be all mediated, of course, by pattern recognition via pattern recognition receptors, which we know are of high concentration in neurons and in microglia. Okay. Hence, repurposing them, not just for associated decrease in potential pathological organisms from entering a CNS, but for retailoring the brain after micro lesions that occur because of the presence of molecular oxygen, ultimately making reactive oxygen and going through, and then having fatty acids that are disassociated from the membrane and metalloproteinases, all of which are functioning to cause partial, highly limited brain damage can also be involved in the repair mechanism. And all of that in association with continued brain development throughout life. All right. Now, let's go to a paper published in Cell Reports in 2018. This is February, volume 22. I will put this uh, citation in the show notes. What is this paper going to tell us? It tells us that the activation of T lymphocytes to proliferate and develop into actual effector cells is going to be regulated at the level of TCR ligation. So TCR is the T-cell receptor, and it's going to be ligated, okay? It's going to bind to, it's going to re receive signaling often from the antigen-presenting cell, right? Remember, it's a cell-cell contact mechanism for T-cells. Now, that triggers when you get TCR ligation to an antigen-presenting cell. That will trigger what's known as a receptor tyrosine kinase cascade, RTK cascade, and then ultimately signaling. And you'll get things like the co-stimulatory signals of membrane protein like CD28, which will further amplify all those signals and engage another series of kinases called the serine threonine kinases. And this is now going to be subcellular in the cytoplasm. And of course, we've talked about these many times. These include the AKT and the mTOR. That then will ultimately lead along the lineage of full T-cell activation and proliferation. Okay. So you have metabolic and nutrient sensing pathways that are ultimately the under foundation of the regulation to be poised, to be stimulated, to carry out this activation process initiated by the TCR ligation, okay? So you have metabolic and nutrient sensing. So you have an effector phase where T cells perform initially aerobic glycolysis. And, that, and the reason that occurs, you'll soon see, because 
Um, it's going to involve actually the production, not of pyruvate for running through the TCA cycle, as you might guess, to get the maximum amount of ATP after uh, glucose oxidation, but actually you're going to get lactic acid production in these T cells. Lact, that's correct, lactic acid production. So that's kind of an unusual consideration, right? So you're fermenting basically glucose to lactate. And normally that occurs in anaerobic environment. This is going to be occurring in a fully aerobic system, such as the T lymphocyte. So what's going on is believe is glycolysis keeps up with, at a very minimalistic level, ATP demands. But if you have a glucose-rich environment, it's okay to be wasteful on that oxidation of the hexose sugar. Because when you go run through the lactic acid pathway, you in one step regenerate NAD plus, the oxidized form of nicotinamide adenine dinucleotide. And that will then preserve this overall biosynthetic circuit, okay? Of which the mitochondria is not necessarily involved in the early stages of the T cell receptor activation. But ultimately, the mitochondria can be triggered in and down the road for the synthesis, transcription and translation of all the pro-inflammatory cytokines and chemokines and growth factors, they're going to be necessary for the T cell to carry out its full effector um, potential, or if it's going to be a Treg cell, ability to regulate this whole system, that's going to be downstream, and that's going to take mitochondrial biogenesis, which is going to take a lot longer, a lot more energy. So early on, the conduit goes from glucose to pyruvate to lactate, and that's sufficient to carry on the very early stages of T cell receptor ligation and through the initial phases of T cell differentiation and activation before the support of full cytokine and chemokine synthetic pathways. So you have a molecular mechanism which involves the initiation of aerobic glycolysis and T lymphocytes, okay? And it seems like the glycolytic machinery is going to be on because it's always on baseline in all cells. And you're going to have to have then a, a couple of other unique enzymatic systems that are going to be amplified for these T cells to be poised and then regulate this early phase of T cell differentiation. And that's going to basically involve the expression of a few enzymes. Py pyruvate kinases and lactate dehydrogenases are going to play a key feature as are uh, pyruvate dehydrogenase and lactate dehydrogenase sense strict to, but also that all important enzyme pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase, which remember shuts off the PDH enzyme. Therefore, um, keeping the movement of pyruvate to acetyl-CoA to a bare minimum. With the lack of acetyl-CoA production, you don't then incur the whole pathway that, it, that is the TCA system in the mitochondria. You hold that back in abeyance and you allow glycolysis to carry out your bioenergetic function in these early stages, right? Now, other enzymes, you would, of course, be... Uh, well aware it would be necessary for this to be going on are all the glycolytic enzymes. So hexokinase is going to play a major role here, and it's going to be transcriptionally regulated at those early stages of T-cell receptor activation. Right? Later on, you're going to have the P13 kinase, 
the AKT and the mTOR pathways. And, uh, and then along that, you're gonna also have the epoxia inducible factor one alpha functioning, because all of that is going to mediate the distinction between aerobic glycolysis and full aerobic metabolism through the mitochondria as that T cell uh, matures from early to medium to late in its ontogenic profile being regulated now to control um, something that's occurring, uh, for example, in the central nervous system. So the research that's shown in this paper is going to take a look at all the signaling events that initiate this aerobic glycolysis in T-cells. And they want to look at what are the uh, kinetics and the dynamics of that system. They also want to key out what are the specific discrete molecular determinants for each of those event ontologies, okay? Basically, they want to know how you get T-cell effector function um, that starts off with rapid aerobic glycolysis and then shifting away from that glycolytic machinery to full aerobic metabolism, where even fatty acids could be ultimately used after beta-oxidation, okay? So here's a couple of take-homes to consider just as an introduction of this paper and of this whole topic. The T-cell receptor signaling alone actually seems to be able to mediate this rapid activation-induced glycolysis. That's what came out of this 2018 paper. The rapid activation-induced glycolysis is, as they have, we will see, as revealed by the work here done in this paper, by pyruvate-dehydrogenase kinase 1, and the manner is going to the manner of this regulation is actually going to be independent of de novo transcription, translation, and even of glucose flux, which is sort of an unusual thing to consider. It seems almost paradoxical. Now, pyruvate flux into mitochondria, of course, we know this canonically as biochemists, um, is controlled by the pyruvate dehydrogenase complex because that directs pyruvate import into the mitochondria and also actually carries out the conversion to acetyl-CoA. We went over that PDH enzymatic mechanism very, very briefly um, three lectures ago, so I don't need to talk about it now. But once you make acetyl-CoA, all you need is oxaloacetic acid to condense, and you start firing through the TCA cycle, making citrate as your first uh, product of that cycle. Now, the prominent form of pyruvate dehydrogenase regulation, of course, there are more than one form, particularly in the liver, you see this. But in the lymphocyte, the predominant form of PDH regulation is actually this phosphorylation modification. And that then allows for glycolysis to have what's known as a gatekeeper. <clears throat> that gatekeeper, according to these authors, is going to be the pyruvate dehydrogenase kinase 1, isoform 1. Okay, and that's encoded for a particular by a particular gene called PDK1, and of course, what's going to what what the activity of that enzyme is going to do is what it's going to inhibit PDH. That means it's going to block pyruvate flow into the mitochondria, and then because pyruvate builds up, you're going to facilitate lactic acid fermentation, and the conversion of pyruvate to lactic acid is carried out by LDH, lactate dehydrogenase. So in cancer, interestingly the PDH kinase 1 can itself be phosphorylated by tyrosine kinases, RTKs. These, uh, uh, this stimulates its function to promote glycolysis. 
So tyrosine phosphorylation of PDHK1 becomes rapidly induced upon TCR ligation. Now, that's curious, right? So then cancer, you get the kinase becomes phosphorylated by other kinases, and that's going to stimulate glycolysis. Now, the reason that is, is because when PDHK1 is phosphorylated, it's going to be more active, right? And so when it's more active, you're going to have a higher level of glycolysis, even in the aerobic mode, because you're blocking, because the, kind of, the PDHK1, now phosphorylated, is going to be super annuated to phosphorylate PDH, thus shutting down the TCA cycle, thus promoting glycolysis in the form of lactic acid fermentation. Okay. Now, there's a compound called dichloroacetate, been, been around for a long time. It's actually an inhibitor of PDHK1. And so if you inhibit PDHK1 with DCA, with, with this dichloroacetate, you then alter the initiation of glycolysis in these T cells, right? So the activity of the PDHK1, that's how they did these experiments, reads out by its phosphorylation of PDH, of course. It's also increased upon T cell activation. And as I just said, they can inhibit it with DCA. So they have a nice model system to function in. Now, I want you to keep in mind that glucose-derived pyruvate levels in this particular paper become unchanged at 30 minutes between resting and stimulation of these T lymphocytes. So glucose-derived pyruvate levels are unchanged. Now, they confer that confirms prior notions that glycolytic enzymatic machinery that produces pyruvate glucose doesn't itself seem to be altered directly by TCR activation. They did this, of course, with uh, C13-labeled lactate. And they found that C13-labeled lactate markedly increased in the media in response to TCR signaling in a DCA-dependent manner, and thus a PDHK1-dependent manner. You understand? So they're using heavy isotopic carbon to be able to load up that carbon into lactic acid and see that this is the process that's occurring. All right. Now, since PDHK1 activation inhibits pyruvate processing to the mitochondria, you're going to get less incorporation of C13 labeling. And that was observed. That's going to, you're not going to see it in TCA cycle intermediates, particularly the ones they looked at in this paper were the, were the beginning and the end, citrate and malate. And so all of that was observed in response to stimulation. Less C13 flowing into the TCA cycle by measuring using mass spectroscopy that C13 um, heavy isotope of carbon in the beginning product of TCA cycle citrate and one of the end products, malic acid. Okay. And all of that can be controlled or mitigated by the DCA treatment, right? Because the DCA treatment is going to block the kinase. If it blocks the kinase, pyruvate dehydrogenase then will be fully functional. And you're going to have a whole lot more C13 flowing into the TCA cycle. You see. I'm just giving you the uh, the actual experimental methods they're using without telling you this is method one, method two. I'm explaining to you how what the actual readout is in the experiments at the bench level. Now, only glucose-derived TCA cycle activity actually turns out to be inhibited. 
because the abundance of unlabeled TCA cyclonimediates remained unchanged regardless of treatment. Okay, so that's kind of curious, right? Now, that means that because the TCA cycle is anaplerotic, all the other pathways that are involved in regulating carbon flow and nitrogen flow in the T lymphocyte is not affected by TCR activation. Okay, only this axis of PDH, LDH, PDHK, right? That's the point I want to make here. So PDHK was knocked down in these experiments as well, using a ret rather than just the inhibitor, using a retroviral RNA, interfer uh, uh, IRNA, interference RNA. And they, they did this in CD8 positive T cell expansion. Okay, so they're looking at CD8 cells primarily in this paper. They also did some CD4 work. So they're looking at this in CD8 positive T cell expansion populations, and that revealed a significant decrease in the activation induced glycolysis, okay, when they knocked down PDHK1. Now, of course, that makes sense, right? Because you're getting then less glycolysis and more aerobic metabolism through the TCA cycle, you see. So I can say thus PDHK1 is an important signaling node induced by early T cell activation. And it's going to, it's going to basically involve a rheostat for the bioenergetic fate of all the glucose in those cells. So if you inhibit PDH, you're going to block TCA and you're going to promote lactic acid fermentation via LDH. Okay. I've said that now three times. I think you get the take home there. So you have rapid activation induced glycolysis. And that's going to regulate a distinct down the road acute T cell effector function, which is critical for our discussion here today. So, the inhibition of PDHK1, which is going to be again fundamental to this research here in this paper, in the early phase inhibited the ability of effector CD8 positive T cells to rapidly synthesize interferon gamma interleukin-2, and TNF-alpha early on after TCR activation. That's within one in six hours after activation. So it's really critical. So that still is a readout now, you see, because you need glycolysis to carry out those very early functions to rapidly synthesize some of these cytokines that are going to be acting as actually growth effectors for other immune cell populations, which we've talked about in the past. All right. So that's really important to keep in mind. So DCA treatment alone inhibited cytokine production and overnight activation. And that suggests possibly that although the switch is induced quickly upon activation, it is also used later into the activation phase to facilitate the cytokine synthesis and secretion. Now that may have something to do not only with the glucose movement through glycolysis and the synthesis of lactic acid. I'm thinking that has to do with some of that glucose going through the very important <laughs> oxidative pentose phosphate pathway. And if it does that, it's going to produce what? It's going to produce ribose. So there'll be more DNA synthesis and more RNA synthesis necessary for cells that are actively um, recombining. Remember the TC receptor recombines. Um, and not only that, it'll enhance the amount 
of transcription and translation frequency because you need a lot of nucleotides for that. And you also need any DPH, any DPH is going to be synthesized in the OPP. Now, they didn't look at that in this paper, but that's my add-on addition for you because I'm your authentic biochemist. So you get rapid activation due to glycolysis, which supports ultimately post-transcriptional control of cytokine synthesis. And all that's going to funnel through the PDH, LDH, PDHK axis. Okay. So we're going to stop there because I'm almost out of my time. And don't worry, we have a lot more to say on this subject and we're going to get right into it. Um, probably even do another lecture today on this Sunday afternoon. Um, so that we can we can fill you with a full knowledge base of how T lymphocytes are functioning. Because I'm, now I'm going to bring that in. I told you that the way I do this is go down to the fundamental level, the foundational level, and then I bring each of those foundations as pillars or pylons moving this whole foundation up so we create then an understanding of how the immune system interacts with the aging process to develop all of the potential diseases that occur in late, uh, in late aging in humans, including susceptibility to etiologic disease agents like pathogens, but also neurodegeneration. Okay. And that's, that's the larger picture we're trying to talk about here. So thank you very much for your undivided attention. And uh, I will get back to you soon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra. Uh, coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios on the 13th of December, 2020, saying bye for now. <laughs>